Hey, welcome to Coin Talk. We have a great show for you today. We brought in our friend, writer, journalist, Gideon Lewis Krauss. He just wrote a huge story for Wired about Tezos. Yes, that Tezos, the Tezos that became synonymous with ICO trash fires. I didn't know a lot of the backstory of this whole thing, and it was fascinating to read about it and then get to talk to Gideon all about it. We are brought to you in partnership with Medium. Medium has great writing about crypto. If you're reading it, you should become a member. It's five bucks a month. It unlocks things like all of the transcripts of this show, which uh, there's lots of them now. I'm doing the show for a bit. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. You can find them all at medium.com slash cointalk. You can send us an email, hi at cointalk.show. We are overdue for a mailbag. We are overdue for reading some listener questions on air. So send them in. We'll be addressing those very shortly. I think we're going to have an exciting next few months on this show. I'm, hey, it's just a prediction. Uh, yeah, let's do the show. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Thursday, June 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $5,883. Welcome to Coin Talk. Here with uh, my co-host, Jay Kang. Hello. And very, very special guest, Gideon Lewis Krauss, live here in the Crypto Cave. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Gideon, what do you think about the Crypto Cave? I love the Crypto Cave. I'm really impressed by it, actually. Thank you. Thank you. You're our first uh, full-time guest. Yeah. Usually sure. we had the guests sit on a stool in yeah. the corner. You're, so you're... like Adrian and Charlie Warzel were sitting in like a dunce stool in the corner. But like you're our first. You've been guest. you've been given a position of prominence here. I hope you I hope you feel honored. Well, I appreciate the view of all the tools, you know, because it makes it feel like this is a place of like real physical industry and yeah. mechanism. Either that or like a place where we torture people to get their <laughs> private keys. It's a very manly space, I gotta say, Aaron. It's it's to compensate. This room is like the poor man's Lamborghini. <laughs> there, there are two, do you see two? Crow, there are two. Uh, every time I'm down here, I'm fascinated with the fact that you have two vicious looking crowbars hanging. And well, like, say, what do you need two crowbars? I'll tell you this: for? What happens if your crow, first crowbar breaks? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have one crowbar? <laughs> I've used that crowbar before. Really? Okay. Well, one of them is pretty rusty. I think so. One of them is if you need a rusty. crowbar. That's because I'm always out there crowbarring in the rain. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> Gideon, you wrote an article for Wired about Tezos. Yeah. I've never actually been... Is that the correct pronunciation? Some people say Tezos. Some pe people say Tezos. Some people say Tezos. There's no, there's no like clear pronunciation. I remember... I, I can't even remember. It was in the article, but where did the name Tezos come from? Arthur Brightman, who is the is technical... It, does it use some sort of combining multiple different languages or something? No. So Arthur Brightman, the, the technical founder, uh, it's a husband and wife couple, Arthur and Kathleen Brightman. And Arthur wrote a script to produce pronounceable two-syllable words in English that did not appear on the internet. So he failed. Because it's Tezos, Tezos, or How can a made-up word be in English? Uh, no, well, pronounceable. Not pronounceable. Okay, yeah. Well, so that, but then actually, it does turn out that there are some meanings in some languages. Well, the weird thing is that it, I've, when I first got into crypt, crypto, I was always confused by Tezos and Trezor yeah. sounding both having a T and a Z. And I actually, I'll admit, I originally thought that was one thing. Did you think they're both related to Trent Reznor? I thought that actually every time I saw <laughs> Trezor. Uh, the NIN uh, coin still waiting out there. To NIN coin. <laughs> 
Um, so I, I want to get to Tezos and your story, but you guys want to do a little news first? Yeah, let's do it. Gideon, we were actually talking about that. Uh, what is it? The National Bureau, Bureau of Economic Economics uh, report. Tell, tell, tell us what the basics of what that report said. There's a economist at the business school at the University of Chicago. His last name is Budish. And he wrote this paper in collaboration with some other people that basically demonstrates through some like relatively simple equations that if you look at the like incentive mechanism that would stave off a 51% attack, that the transaction fees have to scale so high um, as the network grows that essentially it would destroy Bitcoin as a means of exchange for smaller transactions. I mean... We've come back to a lot of times on the show. It's kind of incredible that this Satoshi elegant system works as well as it does. If you had told me this eight years ago, I've been like, I will hit some sort of roadblock. It'll be something that people haven't foreseen and it'll destroy the whole system. And I don't think the fact that it's existed for what, 10 or 11 years now means that won't happen. But we have passed many similar roadblocks along the way where I was like, this seems like a fatal problem. But I, I, you know, I don't know. It depends whether you think Satoshi has thought through things like this. Yeah, well, he okay. So, but then he also divides up the paper into two different motivations for a fifty-one percent attack. Right. So the bulk of the paper is devoted to the economic incentive for a fifty-one percent attack. That yep. like you take control of fifty-one percent of the hash power. You like from then on control the which is the consensus chain for some number of of blocks and you can like you know infinitely double spend in that right. period of time and like that's the basis for like the money that you could make whereas he also then says one of the arguments that people have made is that it goes against anybody's incentive to destroy the network because that would destroy the value that they hold on the network correct but he says you know at a certain point if you like take Bitcoin maximalists like at their word and believe that this is going to like be the you know the backbone of international banking or whatever at that point actually there are people who would want to use a 51% attack not simply to like steal a bunch of money but to cripple the system and he was yeah. like so at that point the incentives are totally different because you're no longer trying to calculate are my like transaction fees high enough that it's oh, you're always going to be incentivized to like protect the system it's right. a whole different set of incentives that would lead you to want to just destroy the system. Yeah, I mean, th this is, uh, we're still due. Jay, do you want to do a, a close read of the white paper as our next book club? Yeah, let's I think do we're it. overdue. Because I'm, I'm remembering this all from the white paper, but hazily. But I, I do remember that all of the explanation of 51% attacks basically assume that 51% attacks are done by thieves, by people who are financially motivated. And... I think you're correct that if we reach a possible Bitcoin maximalist state and let's say the adversary stops being thieves and starts being the state itself, A, the resources are higher and B, the game theory inputs are different and you wouldn't have really th thought about that problem in advance. Right. Like, I haven't even really thought about the state shutting down Bitcoin through a 51% attack rather than through throwing people in jail, which I think is most people's baseline assumption. Yeah, I didn't really thought about that either, but I don't understand why they wouldn't. Like, that. it seems like that's, like, the silver bullet that the state will always have. Yeah, it's going to be, like, like NATO gets together to do like, a 51% attack. Like, maybe we should kill this thing, 
they can just pull their money to be together and be like, okay, it doesn't exist anymore. Is it possible the state well, but, wouldn't be able to get enough chips and computers to do that? Like, are there enough? Is there enough hardware on Earth? To well, buy but I mean, to like, if it? you're talking about state actors and like we all, you know, know like what a high percentage of miners are in China, like that. If China wanted to nationalize the ASIC production industry, like, sure, of course, some would argue that. they already have. Yeah. In terms of countries that would attempt a 51% attack on Bitcoin, who 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 do you think the uh, the front riders are? China? Yeah, I mean, but they're destroying like a lot of the wealth because a lot of the money's in China. I don't think that any country right now is incentivized to destroy Bitcoin. Like it was the probably number one is probably Russia because like if they can actually create a competitor coin and then they destroy bitcoin but i don't well I, 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 I like this idea i don't really see like you know because it's like a it's cri- like a putin they want metallic the conspiracy to crash bitcoin well no because they actually are trying to create a nationalized cryptocurrency you know so yep. it does kind of make sense for them to destroy all the other cryptocurrencies and then have all cryptocurrency enthusiasts you know kind of begrudgingly maybe use the crypto ruble or something like that i think they're probably number one i guess i just don't really see the incentive for this and i i am actually curious does he list in the paper how much money this would cost like right now to do uh like a 51% there is attack? like an implication of that i mean of course you have to like assume all these different kinds of variables i mean like billions and billions and billions of dollars yeah and it also assumes that you have all of the hardware and yeah. like all, all of that but it, it would be interesting to play out a scenario in which certain governments are pushing a 51% attack on the Bitcoin network and other governments are protecting the Bitcoin network potentially because they're cur- they have gone to a Bitcoin yeah. standard. You just describe like an extremely boring Bitcoin movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who do you think would be leading the um, 49% resistance? Like the Swiss would be the kind of country that would be like protecting too, the Bitcoin I think they're network. too neutral. I think that it would have to be like a ragtag group of of uh, of cypherpunks. Venezuela Venezuela. Like they have no nation, but they just want to save Bitcoin because they believe in it. And uh they end up working for like the state. It's like uh Catch Me If You Can. Like well, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie where he's like uh check forger. I think it would be like that. Well you brought up Jay in our last episode when we were interviewing um uh Safe Amus. You were like, do you really think it's a good idea for the Winklevoss twins to have like more than one percent of the world's wealth? And he was like, Absolutely. But the people who would truly be able to defend against a state 51% attack would be like feudal oligarchs of our future, like the Winklevoss twins. Well, and I mean, but also like they would need access. You would, I mean, I think you would be talking about an energy oligarch because they would need access to like the massive amounts of energy. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Who's got, who's got all the power. There are some countries that just have a lot of electricity. Yeah. And and that's going to become more and more pronounced as uh, energy becomes uh, environmental rather than uh, oil based. And like, you know, part of the reason that like so much hashing is in China obviously is because they had like overproduction of hydro, which means that there's tons and tons of cheap energy. This would be a fun board game to play. Where we're all trying to get like electricity yeah, and miners, and, and you can do like it would be long... one of those like German board game of the yeah, year. Yeah, it like, like takes like eleven hours thing. to play. It has seven hundred pieces. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I'm attacking from Kamchatka, like with my Dragon ASIC two. <laughs> I, have, I have started development on nuclear fusion. We'll take 245 turns. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, I think this is. I, I think we should just do this Kickstarter, guys. <laughs>
Kickstarter is actually a good uh, good transition because I remember Gideon that you ha- you wrote about a failed hardware Kickstarter. I did. How yeah. long ago was that? Three or four years ago? Yeah, three years ago. I think three years it was ago. Spring of twenty fifteen. And there is nothing that the ICO environment resembles to me more than a failed hardware Kickstarter. Oh, I mean, that was on my mind the whole time that I was working on this. But the background of the Kickstarter story is that. Actually, in that case, also a, a couple. Uh, they weren't married at the time. Just to pause you guys, doing a Kickstarter or an ICO with your wife, easily one of my like lowest life priorities. Well, I would never do so something like that. I actually like that. think in both of these cases, like some element of the frustration that the community experienced like, had to do with the fact that this was a romantic couple yeah. because it just triggers so much weird oh, yeah. like familial yeah. stuff with people. And like the Kickstarter, so this couple, they were going to, um, they had invented this like incredibly precise home espresso machine that was going to occupy this like low like market niche and like the thing worked i mean it wasn't they had actually yeah. built this and but the then, challenge was produced producing well the it. challenge well so the, i mean like the funny thing about about that story which actually is like sort of relevant to the tezos thing also which is that because of the economics of production if they had gotten 150 orders they could have just made it in their garage right and if they had gotten like 100,000 orders they could have realized like the like economy of scale and like produced it in a um, economically viable way, but they basically had to deliver like two thousand of these things, and it was like almost impossible in a cost-effective way to deliver two thousand of these espresso machines. They tried really, really hard. Yeah, it's but, been an issue in miners also. Yeah, until mining became a huge industry, most of the early miner miners were pieces of shit. Because, but like their community of people who had bought this, in part because of like the weird, like liminal nature of what a Kickstarter donation is, where like you don't actually like own a piece of the company. It's not like equity. Like they don't owe you anything so the community became convinced that there had to be some like really elaborate conspiracy here that was keeping their coffee machines from them and i do think that the fact that it was a husband and wife couple meant that there was this feeling that they were being like shut out of the parental bedroom and they were like trying to peer in through the keyhole and like see what was going on when like in reality like nothing nefarious was going on they just like couldn't build this right yeah and this is like as we've talked about icos on this show this has been a consistent theme where I'll ask Jay, what percentage of these altcoins are scams? And Jay will say, uh, more than 95%. And I'll go, oh, I see it more as 90%. And then we'll be like, well, the difference in those two figures depends on how you perceive some of these things that are colossal failures, but potentially well-intentioned or at least neutrally intentioned as projects, which is a good way to describe. I don't think many people started Kickstarters as true scams. But many people who back Kickstarters got scammed. Yeah. What was the final outcome in that story? Did they ever deliver? No. The, and then this other guy came in and like bought their technology or tried to buy their technology, but it didn't. It didn't ever really come to anything. You ever have an espresso that was made in there? I did actually. Yeah. It was good stuff. It was. It was really good. I mean, like, it, like that's the thing that was sad about this whole story is like they had this functional product. Yeah. They just couldn't scale it. Having a functional product puts them. At least three tiers above all ICOs. Yeah, they were going to the ICO Hall of Fame yeah, for, exactly. uh, for building most, but failing to scale. This is the most reputable, <laughs> successful ICO in history. <laughs> Hall of Fame. I think that uh, you just described actually what the closest similarity between the, the Kickstarter and the ICO is. That the audience is in a similar position where you've got their money, you're supposed to deliver something. And you may or may not actually be able to deliver it. And a lot of the people who are selling it. Not necessarily people you would bank on to be able to deliver the thing 
that they set out to deliver. So in the case of this, this was like a couple who had no real experience building hardware, right? Right. In the case of uh, Tezos, which I, I want you to give us the like elevator description of the story, also people who didn't have experience that would lead you to believe they were going to necessarily be able to execute a $200 million plus software project. Although you could say the same thing about Vitalik, right? Yeah. Well, except that was only $18 million. And, the, oh, right. and that already existed. Yeah. Well, it wasn't finished, though. But yeah. it existed. It, well, but Tezos did, yeah. too. I mean, like, I, I'm not sure that there's that much of a difference. In, in terms, terms of like, where they were. In terms of the... where they were. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll give, like, a kind of a top line summary of the whole thing. But then there are some, there are some interesting things to go into what makes us different from a Kickstarter. Yeah. yeah. So Arthur and Kathleen Brightman, Arthur is, is French, gone to this, like, very selective school in Paris. It studied math and computer science and economics. He was working as a high-frequency trader at Goldman Sachs. His now wife, Kathleen, Nay McCaffrey, now Kathleen Brightman, they had met when she was still in college, and then they had started paying attention to Bitcoin relatively early and like dissecting what was wrong with it. And one of the first things that Arthur had published under a pseudonym was about the flaws that he saw in Bitcoin in like 2013, I think it was. Some of them are the common flaws that lots of people have diagnosed about like energy usage and stuff like that. And also he thought, oh, well, we need, you know, something that could like do a lot more than Bitcoin could do in like a way that was describing like what, you know, became smart contracts and Ethereum. But then the other thing was that he was like this, there's no dispute resolution mechanism, which means that like Satoshi had created this thing, had become kind of an absent god. And like now there was like a core development team, but it was like this fundamentally conservative project because there was just there was no way internally to change it. Right. That like there were like software updates updates that then you could either like accept or like walk away from. Yeah. So it, yep. so like your only option was to like vote by exit. Now this has become kind of like a standard talking point, especially after like the Bitcoin hard fork or whatever. But when he first started talking about this, this wasn't really like he's right that this wasn't really on anyone's radar back then. It was like how to resolve these disputes in like a democratic manner. So he starts working on this thing that he ultimately calls Tezos. He um publishes a white paper under the pseudonym L.M. Goodman, which was a snide reference to Leah McGrath Goodman, the Newsweek journalist who had, like, found <laughs> Dorian Nakamoto in the phone book. Gideon, this is one of the things that, uh, Ed, look, this is a total aside, but it's one of these things that I think your writing is good at with little details, but isn't it that the first time they went, that these two, the Brightmans went on a date, that he took her to a anarcho-capitalism... Like meetup meet uh, yeah. under false pretense, that under was, the belief that she was going to <laughs> yeah, a different it. event. Okay, I'm just gonna met. say that is the worst first date idea I've ever heard of in my hey, life. It worked out. That's definitely <laughs> that's definitely the first scene in the crypto movie, though, is the guy being like, "Hey, we're, we're, you want to go to a meetup with me?" And then it's just all dudes. Well, they never they, they never met. It was they were set up by like a mutual acquaintance. It's so crazy to be like, I'm interested in this woman. My first idea will be to take her to a crypto anarchist meetup. Yeah. Well, no, because he had he had heard he had heard about her like classical liberal beliefs. And like emailed her to say, like, do you want to come to this meetup? But yep. he declined to tell her that it was in fact an anarcho-capitalist meetup. And then like only revealed this to her when she comes in. And then she says, like, she wouldn't have come, but it was too late. Do you think he did this serially? He would find women that he thought might have libertarian leadings and then just be like, come to a classical liberal meetup. 
Is there even such thing as a classical oh, yeah. liberal that's leader? That's what I think is so funny For about sure it. Is that, well, na- I mean, that's what I think is so funny is that she was, is that like, there was this part of it that was like, oh, it's completely normal to be asked on a, on a <laughs> blind date to a classical liberal meetup. <laughs> uh, the only thing I can think of that would be worse is if you went to like a craft uh, home brew convention if that was like your date I, I think i would rather go to an anarcho-capitalist meeting than like a bunch of home craft brewers anyway i'm sorry like this is quite a diversion but go ahead so he publishes this this white paper same listserv where bitcoin had made its debut everybody ignores it he then spends some time trying to like sell it to corporate entities but by his own admission he wasn't a very good salesman he doesn't have a, a ton of patience for people that he doesn't think are all that smart. And so, the, like, the whole thing stagnated for a little while. He went to work at Google doing machine learning stuff. Then, at some point in the late summer of 2016, he hears from this guy named Johan Givers, who is a, a South African expat now living in Switzerland. He has this digital payments company called Monitas. They had met through one of these, like, laissez-faire cities that are funded by the seasetting people. And... They. This is like a description of a person that I would just run away from. Like <laughs> South African living in Switzerland with a background. I'd be like, I'd be like, no, not don't want to do business with this person. <laughs> you, you, you do a Bitcoin podcaster. <laughs> like I feel like that's the next thing in that list. And so this this guy had become like one of the big evangelists for blockchain related fintech enterprises in Switzerland, and not just in Switzerland, but in this small canton of Zug near yep. Zurich. And he had been part of the original Ethereum ICO in January 2014. This had raised $18 million, which had been enough to complete the project and launch the network. There had been a number of successful ones since then. At this point, trusting someone because they were or claimed to be associated with the Ethereum launch? Terrible idea. There must have been 10,000 people involved with the launch of Ethereum if we are well, to believe, how about that question? How involved was he? Like, this yeah. is a legitimate guy. Though, yeah, you actually saying. looked into this person. The question of his legitimacy, like, becomes the big yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he, like, he claims that the like original Ethereum Foundation members were thinking about Singapore, and they were thinking about other like. I think this was before like Malta and Gibraltar were doing blockchain stuff, but they were thinking about other like flexible jurisdictions, and they had like crashed on his floor, and he had introduced them to these lawyers at a law firm called MME, which is like the big ICO law firm, and that he had helped. At the very least, it seems like he helped broker the introductions initially. Okay. Um, ultimately, like Giver says to the Brightmans, like you guys should do an ICO now. The, like so, then the question is, well, what exactly is an ICO, especially? given like the Kickstarter framing. What year are we in right now? This is like summer, fall 2016. Okay. And one of the things that I think tends to like get lost in a lot of these conversations is that there really are like two different goals in an ICO. The analogy that I use in the piece is that it's like you're planning a theme park and you are raising money against future tokens to use the rides, uh, in order to build the theme park. So you're like publishing the blueprints of the theme park and you're saying like, I need money to build this. And in exchange for the money that you're going to put into building this, you're going to get tokens that work on the rise. And beyond that, it's going to be like a participatory, cooperative, decentralized theme park where like if you want to then like come in here and like put up your own ride, like you can come in and, in like a kind of second life way, like come in and just and build, right? And additionally, part of the claim is those tokens will allow you to ride the rides and this amusement park is going to be so awesome 
that everyone's going to want to ride these rides and your token will increase in value as a well, result? Well, okay. So, like, nobody is going to say that because the minute that you start telling people that there's, like, an expectation of speculative return, then you get into, like, securities territory. Yeah, right. So... Everybody knows that there is some, like, possibly, like, the interest is overwhelmingly speculative. Yes. But because of the way that American securities law works, like, you have to play that part down. You have to say that this is not about making a return on your investment in the token. This is about being able to use these tokens. So this, this will allow you to ride one ride and... <clears throat> There's a there's a decentralized exchange in which you might be able to sell it, but hey, who knows? Well, and but also, and like one of the things that's slightly <laughs> what was that coughing noise you made. <laughs> I was just saying, like that's like there's a wink wink element, which okay, is yeah, yeah, yeah. while this is like a ticket to ride, it's also a ticket ride where there's an elaborate system for uh, trading tickets well, to ride and, already in place. Well, and and that's not incidental, right? Because the thing is, like you're fundamentally selling something that does not have any value and like may never actually have any value depending right. on like, do these rides get built? Does anyone care about the rides once they're built? So the only way that you're going to establish like a baseline value is because of speculation. So like you actually need the speculators to essentially make the first sort of like auction bid. Like you need somebody who believes it's going to be worth something. And of course, those people that you're going to be like running on speculative motivation, even if you're at the same time disclaiming that for legal reasons well, and, and or for ideological reasons. Additionally, like as I understand it, like when you take something like Ethereum, you're selling tickets to ride, but people are buying uh, well more tokens than they would ever have an appetite for roller coasters. So you at least, if you don't believe that it's going to speculatively be worth more, you at least believe that you will be able to exchange with other people those tokens. Yeah, because uh, otherwise you're signing up for a life of but amusement parks. Well, no, well, yeah. but but that's because you also like fundamentally believe, especially with something like Ethereum, which is offering a decentralized world computer. You believe that there are going to be like so many different kinds of rides available in this park that like you never have to leave the park. That right. it's going to become like a Truman Show park. Right. And Jay and I, if I went deep on roller coaster coin and Jay went on giant soda coin, I'm exactly. like, hey, I could, we could swap. I could get my giant soda. You can ride the, the thing. Everyone wins. Right. Ex exactly. So there's like the premise that, you know, at the beginning, you're always going to need to like cash out of your tokens to pay your rent or yep. whatever. But that like down the line, these are going to, they're going to be such big networks for their usage that you're, you're not, you're no longer going to have to. You pay to rent coin. Yeah. So. Setting aside the question of speculation and like the need for speculation to establish like an initial like sure. price interest, there are two different things that an ICO are, is doing that like tend to get collapsed, and of course they're related, but they are two fundamentally different things. One side is the like sheer fundraising side, which is we need the money to build the amusement park. Yeah. The other side of it is is exactly what we're describing in terms of like building up the like network effects of the economy, which is that we also need a lot of people who are going to use it because the only way it will be valuable is if people are building applications that run on these tokens and if there are like enough people involved that you have like a liquid market for their trading, which is going to give you like price stability and all, like all the other things that like network effects in a currency bring you. So it is simultaneously a fundraising project and a community formation project. Right. Because like the, the thing about Bitcoin is A, like there was no fundraising necessary because like the thing was built. Yes. And B, the community developed organically over a period of now like 11, 10 years. So And it was like, mined. So right. like, well, so, so like yeah. people didn't have to put in 
fiat in the first place, right. people were able to create the initial value through mining, which is not true in the case of Ethereum or Tezos, as far as I understand it. Right. I mean, like you probably could make a kind of abstract argument that like the initial fiat investment is in like the capital necessary to do the mining, which right. is like in, you know, well, originally it was just like general purpose C CPU. So like sure. that didn't matter. But like, of course you were paying for the electricity. So like there actually, there is like some kind of like bedrock value. Well, I think economists would also argue that like people figuring out how to sure, mine course, it is yeah. a form of yeah. uh, productivity. Right, right. But the bottom line is that like the community that arose around Bitcoin was right. bootstrapped. Yes. And it took a long time. And one of the ideas behind an ICO was you're going to get the money to finish the network and it's going to come with this like pre-built-in community of users that are all the people who bought your tokens. So now that there are like a million different coins that are all like fighting it out, it is a way to like make a strong move to establish a user community that like cares about building things for the token. So like that's the other half of it. It's not just about the money. It's also about building the net. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for just a minute because I want to tell you about a different podcast, not this podcast, not Cointalk, uh, LedgerCast with our good friend Ledger Status. You've heard us talking about him on the show. He's been on the show a couple times. And uh, we decided to do a little cross promotion. He's uh, shilling a little coin talk bag over there on the Ledger cast. And I want to shill his bag. So, hey, Brian, how's it going? I'm doing well. And I'm bullish on uh, my coin talk bag. Very nice. Very nice. So, TA technical analysis has been much maligned. <laughs> uh, you, you, it gets a hard time online. And yet, there's this whole generation of people who are trying to trade. And I don't really understand like how you even start without some knowledge of TA. Your show talks a lot about TA. Yeah, we do uh, a lot of TA and we've been digging into more fundamentals, like interviewing with yeah. uh, people that are running projects and whatnot. But uh, I would say technical analysis and the investment incentives into crypto are, are our specialty. Me and Jay are just here um, reading the uh, tea leaves and talking about whatever scandal happened on Twitter <laughs> that week. Uh, where can people find uh, LedgerCast? Yeah, just go to ledgerstatus.com and you can subscribe there or just look for LedgerCast in any, whatever they're called, podcast app, iTunes or whatever else. Uh, come back on the show sometime soon, yeah? I'd be uh, happy to come on anytime. What, what, let's, let's, uh, let's set up an event that we'll have. I, I'd say the first big bounce like when we get a bounce how come on the show and we'll celebrate the bounce how about a thousand dollar bounce off any thousand dollar bounce okay okay that that's a that's a that's a date i'll see you soon all right have a good one. all right let's go back to the show so so like there are these dual purposes right so they're they're generating a community and a the finances to build it so then switzerland comes in because for various reasons that like we don't need to go into right away or maybe ever, like Switzerland has a way where you can do this through a nonprofit foundation. Where Not surprising that there's a Swiss loophole that makes it easy to do um, things that are financially uh, frowned upon in other countries. Right. So in Switzerland, like these lawyers have come up with this idea where like instead of buying these tokens that might never do anything, you're actually like donating the way that you would donate to a Kickstarter. Yep. And the money is going into a nonprofit foundation and then the foundation is controlling how the funds get dispersed which is going to like provide investor protections yes so 
this whole thing gets set up with Givers as the um, president and founder of this Swiss foundation, which means that he has the financial and budgetary oversight over like the way that the money gets spent. But Kathleen and Arthur Brightman are the ones who are still like building this network that they've been working on. But they have technically they have no like legal role with this foundation, which everybody thought would this would be cleaner. It's it's not going to look like a license for you guys to print money. Like you're going to be separate from this. But at the same time, the foundation isn't necessarily going to be doing operational tasks. The foundation is going to be building the network. It's going to be like setting up the corporate entities and cutting the checks. So at the time, the Brightmans had set up this overview that said, like, if, you know, if we raise $5 million, we'll do this. And if we'll raise $10 million, we'll do this. And their kind of like stretch goal was like $20 million. And then they joked that if they were going to raise more than $20 million, they were going to like buy a major media property or like founded university, which later was used against them as evidence that like, of course, they knew they were going to make a ton of money. But I think the whole thing was kind of tongue in cheek. I, I don't I don't. I mean, it's also strange. It's a strange environment that by a factor of 10, yeah. people are uncertain about how much money they're raising. When, when people raise money for startups, et cetera, they have some idea of what they're raising it for. Like the idea that well, something... I mean, not, but not when Kickstarter was going on. I mean, if you want to use a Kickstarter as an analogy, right, like you right. just had no idea. Like there was... But people like... had to deliver, like for each person who backed the Kickstarter, they had to deliver yeah, one yeah, product. Yeah. Right. So it was scaled. I mean, it's just, it's strange to think a company that conceivably could have delivered a product for $10 million within rational thought also could take $200 million. Well, so, yeah. And, like, they claim that, like, really as late as, like, the late winter of 2016, early 2017, that they thought that they would be lucky if they raised $20 million. Now, in retrospect, that looks totally disingenuous. I don't think there's any way to evaluate that claim now. Like, I am tempted to believe it because this was before everything had gone insane. 10 and $20 million is actually a lot until people are raising $200 million. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I like mean, the, Ethereum was $18 million, $18 million, and that was considered a lot when it happened. Exactly. So, but then in the meantime, while they're, like, setting up all the legal structures for this, like, the ICO market starts to take off. And, you know, there are, like, all kinds of interesting reasons for this. So then this is where I, like, more or less enter the story. Like, in the in spring of 2017, a group of people get together and they found what they call the Crypto Valley Association in the canton of Zug. And the idea is... We have, like, developed this, like, pioneering legal strategy that allows people to do this. It's really hard to build these kinds of decentralized networks in other jurisdictions because they occupy this, like, regulatory gray area. And right here we have, like, the expertise and we have the wealth and we have the, like, regulatory flexibility to do it. And we've got a great name, like the Canton of Zug. Zug, right. And, <laughs> and, and also, like, Zug had been known, like, Zug had been the home of, like, exiled commodities trader Mark Rich. Like, it had been known as, like, a, a place where, like, post office box companies did creative things with their money. So I had seen this press release announcing, like, the formation of the Crypto Valley. And I had thought, like, oh, this could be, like, kind of a fun, like, weird little, like, Bitcoin, projected Bitcoin utopia in Switzerland. So I'd like, I had to be in Europe anyway, and I had like pitch wired on the idea of like, I should just go write about whoever is hanging out in the Crypto Valley. And I get there and I, the first person I met was Givers and I met a lot of other people. And then Givers happened to tell me that like Arthur Brightman was in town. He was telling me about uh, Tezos, which at, at that point I hadn't heard of, but he was anticipating was going to be like the big ICO for all sorts of reasons. While I was there, Bancor raised $150 million. And 
at the end of that trip, which was June of 2017, about two weeks before the Tezos ICO, I like went back to my editor and I was like, look, there's a lot of stuff going on there. We could probably write like a funny little like postcard from Zug right now, or we could like wait until something happens here and yeah. like follow up on that. So we decided we were going to wait. So then Tezos ra- raises $232 million in 13 days, becoming what was to date, like to that point, the biggest ICO in history. I mean, I had like heard about it because I'd been in Zug, but then like I started to notice that like random people like backyard barbecues in Brooklyn like had bought into the Tezos ICO. And I thought like who like these people don't know anything about cryptocurrency. Like where did this marketing come from and like yep. how did this happen? So then basically the whole thing falls apart. So then the, the story ends Pretty up, quickly, right? Wait, how did they get what was the marketing uh, that made it so effective? I think the marketing was that so that they position themselves, and like this gets it like a little granular, but they like position themselves as like the answer to the DAO hack. That like the DAO hack had threatened to undermine like the whole system because of A, sloppy security, and B, the inability for the community to come together and figure out how to move forward. And that Tezos was going to be like the last cryptocurrency because it like it would have these democratic procedures that would allow the community to come together and decide how it should be administered. So it wasn't just going to be like, okay, Satoshi is an absent god, so like we're all kind of paralyzed because we don't know how to move forward. Or we have this like living, breathing god in the form of Vitalik, and like he's going to exercise executive fiat that's going to like determine the shape of this. So it's going to be like decentralized in name, but then like there really is a, an executive presence behind it. And the whole premise of Tezos was we're going to like get around this problem because it's going to be something that like the community can, there's like a voting mechanism for the community to decide how it works. And this is not a totally original idea. There's um, Decred is well, another. Well, now it's not a total. Okay, I mean, like, at so, the time it was. Well, at the, I mean, at the time, like, I mean, if you go back to the original white paper, it was like really the first time people were talking about this. And then even at the ICO, this was like a, a new thing. And lots of people kind of poo-pooed it and said, and still say like, there's no reason to have governance on a protocol la- layer for various reasons. But they were pitching themselves as like, first there, you know, these things like, come in threes and, you know, like there was Frenser and MySpace and then Facebook. And in this case, there was Bitcoin and then Ethereum. And like now there's going to be Tezos. Like that was kind of the like, that wasn't the explicit marketing. That was kind of the message behind it. Well, I mean, I, I thought you were going to cite uh, the, the flip side of that of like why why this one, why then is coming off of Ethereum, much smaller raise. Everyone made a shit ton of money who bought in early. So there's a bunch of that. A bunch of the money that's coming in is not true fiat, but people who've made a bunch of money by speculating on Bitcoin. Right. So people are gambling with Unmarked. a lot of house money. Yeah. And house money gambling has been very good to people yeah. at the time. Yeah. I always kind of read it, and tell me if you disagree, that Tezos was a, a bit at the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the, the, I mean, they would say the same thing. Like, yep. if they had had the ICO six months earlier, it's entirely possible they only would have raised $20 million. I still don't totally understand what... Tezos is, though. Like, I want to read the description from your article. Uh, While the irony of preventing the fragmentation of cryptocurrencies by releasing a new one does not escape us, the second paper concluded, Tezos truly aims to be the last cryptocurrency. So my frame of reference here is Ethereum and various what we refer to as uh, Matryoshka doll cryptocurrencies, which are, it's a currency that you can make more currencies with. It's a token for making more tokens. So if I'm reading you correctly with regards to governance, this is an Ethereum-like project 
with a governance layer that slapped both on top of Tezos itself and derivative tokens that would have been built the other rides in the amusement park, Big Gulp Soda uh, right. Inc., Jay's uh, so stand. They never placed a lot of emphasis on those derivative tokens. Interesting. And in fact, like one of the things that remains unclear to me exactly is like the relationship between like what the derivative tokens would be and like the fundamental underlying token. So there wasn't like an ERC-20 of, of uh, No, they, they do have, like that will be possible, but that's not really their emphasis. So it could, the whole thing could run just on Tezos. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, so like here is the like foundational myth as like Arthur explained yep. it, which I think is, it, it fell out of the piece because it was a, just a little bit too technical and there was like so much necessary detail. But so Arthur said that he first began to lose faith in the evolutionary possibilities of Bitcoin when, over like Zcash, where he was like, Zcash is developed as uh, a privacy preserving protocol for, that like could easily have been integrated into Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and lots of people, Arthur included, thought that Bitcoin should have integrated Zcash, that this was like a big step forward. But there were also Bitcoin purists who fundamentally didn't trust Zcash because it requires what's called like a trusted setup, which means that there was there was like a moment in time in which a group of people were essential had to like collude to set the whole thing up. But at that point, Forward, it was automated. And so Arthur thought it was like a really big mistake that Bitcoin didn't integrate Zcash on a protocol level and that the mistake was because there was no mechanism for people getting together to make that decision. So Arthur thought all of the altcoins that they describe as like this Cambrian explosion, like that there are tons of different interesting ideas that each one had like tried to add to Bitcoin, but that there was no mechanism by which the good ideas could be kept and the bad ideas discarded in like via a democratic process. There's a moment in this story, I would say maybe the most damning moment of this story in which um, Brightman, Brightman's wife, what, what's her Kathleen. name? Kathleen. says, it's just like tote bags. And this has been like a long-standing question we've had about ERC-20 tokens, we, Tezos, whatever, which is, is the token guaranteed to actually do anything? Because no. there's like this company in San Francisco, I can't remember the name, that was selling a token based on the idea that they would do like security audits. And the whole thing was built on the idea that the only way to get these security audits was to buy their token. And then they actually sold the token and then they were like, oh, some people wanted to get a security audit, so we just sold it to them in, U in US dollars and some of them paid in Bitcoin. And it was like, oh, well, there's not really a, a market for that right. anymore. I understand that she probably should not have said that, but is she accidentally revealing a bit the truth there that these tokens are potentially could mean anything? They're like souvenirs for yeah, or like like if you the the context in which she said it was like if you give money to NPR, you know they'll send you an umbrella or something like that. And yeah, that, as a as like a gesture of appreciation. Well, okay, but so on on a very basic level, this was just a mistake that she made in trying to explain what was essentially just like a very complicated legal structure yep. to ensure some degree of complicity with like And she didn't say this to you. She said this she to said a this Reuters, to a Reuters reporter, reporter who, yeah. who originally wrote yeah. the story. So on some level, it just reflects the fact that it's kind of hard to describe the whole point of the sure. foundation structure. But It's kind of hard to describe how tokens work. Yes. Because yes. even people who understand them, I, I don't even put ourselves among them, 
it, there's not a unified view on them. Right. You, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go. Well, I mean, the the best view is is just that it's basically like an arcade token. Yeah. Thing that I think reflects like some deeper truth in the tote bag comment. I mean, I just think the tote bag comment was an ill-advised comment, and like sure. she didn't have a better way of, of explaining it. But the deeper truth that does exist there is that like you know when you get like the NPR tote bag or whatever the New Yorker tote bag, there is some like signaling function that that plays, and it like includes you as part of the like tribe, visible tribe of people who give money to NPR, give money or like our New Yorker subscribers yeah. or whatever. And that part of this is about the establishment of a tribal identity that has a certain view of what the future is going to look like and how money is going to figure into the, that future. And that like the tote bag thing is like some people are buying just as speculators. Some people are buying because like, they clearly really deeply understand the underlying technology and like think that they could like build something on top of it. Most people are buying it because they feel some kinship to the broader philosophy behind it. And like, this is their way of signaling membership in that community. Hmm. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I've, 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 I've think, never heard I, of a single I, person I think it is 99% speculators, 0.9% people who are like, maybe I can use this to build another coin. And then 0.01 person who might be not real either. <laughs> You might well, be lying. Okay, but I'm—I mean, I'm yeah. not arguing for the for the proportions. Like maybe those proportions are right, but like especially if you spend time like on the Tezos Reddit, like there are true believers here. I mean, like look at the interview you did with Saifedean Amis like last week. Like, although I'm sure he would be loath to think of himself this way, he is a fundamentally religious figure, and that is like religious doctrine that he is preaching. Like, and I think when it comes to some of the these other projects don't have the same lineaments of the same religion, but there is something there that is about a, a collective belief in a future that could be different than the past. Hmm. Let me make a counterpoint, though. I agree that m almost everyone who's, in who's investing deeply in cryptocurrency is ideological and has a religious belief. Really? I mean, I invested and I had no ideological or religious belief. Well, well, at least early adopters. Yeah, early. Or, we're, we're talking, talking about, about we're talking at about, the time. We're talking of about that. the kind of people who like read Tim May's manifesto, like the core people that have people that, who haven't touched a vegetable in a year. <laughs> but 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 my point was going to be, I think you can be both. Like you can be an yeah. ideological um, believer and a speculator. Yeah, of course. And someone like Saifedean would say, I think that in the case of Bitcoin, uh, Saifedean hates shit coins, yeah. right? But in the case of Bitcoin. If you buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, you are buying that percentage of the overall supply of Bitcoin in the world. You are actually, you own a piece of Bitcoin. You may not have governance rights to it, but you actually, you do have a form of governance rights because you can buy and sell forks, but you're owning it. Whereas in the case of an ERC-20 token or an ICO, you're buying into something that does that doesn't have some clear supply relationship like that you're getting a little bit you're it's more like a tote bag you're signaling and you're speculating but what the thing is well, one bitcoin is not the same as one well, erc20 okay. So, token okay so first of all this is this is not an erc20 token in the sense that it, it's not just parasitic on somebody else's underlying right. blockchain so it, it is its own right blockchain. or an ethereum token let's say. right right second of all okay but you just like betrayed one of the axiomatic beliefs of like the 
safety in religion, which is that like it only has value because of its scarcity. Right. And like, you know, like as you guys discussed, like this is like the core tenet of Austrian economics and sure. it like reflects a fundamental belief in economies as zero sum the deflationary uh, like, world. Battle yeah. royale, you know, like the, like there's something like really dark about that yeah. in, in the background. So the Brightmans were portrayed when everything started to fall apart and like yep. we haven't even really talked about what happened. I, but, I feel like people, if, if you've listened up to here, read the story yeah. for how it all fell apart and suffice it to say it all fell apart yeah. and not in a code-based way, not in a security flaw, it, in a very it, human way. It fell apart more or less because the person that they trusted, Givers, to, to administer the funds had very different ideas about organizational structure and what should be done with the funds and there was a battle for control over all of this money and in the meantime all their assets were in bitcoin and ether those are rocketing up by christmas time there are lawsuits there are death threats and the foundation is sitting on a billion dollars yes um, and, and has nothing, yet to produce and no one has been paid and nothing has been built yeah that's awesome amazingly so, one of the best business models might be to do a failed ico that just gets you a bunch of f and just sit on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> But so, like, when people started accusing them of, of securities fraud, one of the accusations was, well, you guys had an uncapped ICO, which, so you were just trawling for anybody who would put money into this. Accurate. And in fact, this shows how, like, fraudulent the whole thing was because everybody knows that, like, value comes from scarcity and, like, you guys weren't, the fact that you weren't capping it means that these were never going to have any value because there wasn't going to be scarcity. Now, it's a circular argument because you were establishing initially that value only comes from scarcity, which is not necessarily true. I mean, that is a core belief of the like Austrian economic side of things. But Don't make me get down the crowbar. <laughs> we only allow Austrian school economics here. <laughs> but in their case, like they, so they felt like, okay, if we cap this, yeah. then what basically happens is the only people who get tokens are the people who are like, able like technically or whatever to get in on like this the scarce resource and then there's going to be a pop once it starts trading and it's going to be akin to like the pop that happens on the first day of an ipo where essentially like the banks are making sure that their institutional investors are going to see an immediate return which the banks can do because they are in the position of like rentiers in this case and that is money that is will not be seen by retail investors and will not be seen by the, the company. And so the Brightmans, I think, legitimately did not want to have that kind of speculative pop because they thought that that was unfair. And so they wanted to have an uncapped ICO because they felt like we were going to issue as, as many of these as we can. We don't, we want to discourage speculation. And in the long run, we want people to find these valuable because they're useful, not simply because they're scarce. The, I mean, they failed in that respect. They failed as much as two people could possibly So far, I mean, fail. like, they did just launch their, or, like, they're in the process of launching their beta net. I mean, like, it might all actually, like, really happen in the end. It remains an open question. Interesting. So you, you believe that something, that they could come back from something like this? Like, when we got into crypto, like, yeah. a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had started typing ICO scam, yeah. Tezos yeah, would have yeah. um, auto-corrected yeah. from Google. Like, it... It became synonymous with a project that people poured a ton of money into and produced nothing except hilarious, if you didn't put money in, stories. Yeah. And, and additionally, <laughs> I think that there's like a, a certain schadenfreude here, yeah. which is anarcho-capitalists who believe that the market can solve anything Living being thwarted by yeah. the most basic 
of human conflicts yeah. and everything that happens that makes things not a pure market. Yeah. Like yeah. when you get into business with a South African Swiss seasteader, it may not just play out as a frictionless system of energy bouncing around. Yeah. Where are they at now? Well, I think they're... Rich? They're not rich, though. I mean, they ultimately, like by the terms of their deal, once the network is operational for three months, the foundation can buy their Delaware Corp called DLS for 8.5% of the original proceeds. So like once the found, once the network is launched and functional for some period of time, like, yeah, they'll get $20 million. Um, and they'll have 10% of the genesis block of the tokens, which then could be worth far more than that. But yeah. I mean, like, could they still make this happen? Yeah, they still have, they, one of the ironies that I point to in this piece is that the blockchain, which for so many people is supposed to kind of replace trust in this particular case, because the, the situation got so screwed up, their like community of token holders came together to form this like zealous tribe of supporters that then in fact like helped influence the outcome even without recourse to a blockchain, like with like good old fashioned like human organizing. This happens um, in a lot of like this happened in BitConnect, everything. It almost becomes a worthwhile project simply because it's built a passionate audience because Aaron that passion is talking himself into sumo again right now I, as i've always said <laughs> you're like if, the, if we survive like this the sumo survivalist and like well but like this is this is dead. the psychology of the people you who hold Zeus, these tokens Zeus. that go down in flames is if this is our low moment we got a bunch of people here if we could just build this back we could at least get our money out, et cetera. This, this seems like a dangerous form of thinking. Though. Well, but in this case, like because they had this common enemy yeah. and they could be like, this guy took advantage of them and he was supported by like this whole community of people in Zug that like wanted to prop the whole thing up because they didn't want bad publicity. Because they had this common enemy, they came together as this, as this community to support it. And like now they're more zealous than ever. Uh, a, a thing we've talked about uh, on the show before is that it's hard to figure out why anyone's actually going to build these projects if they're rich. Like, if you make a ton of money on an ICO, and, and it sounds like actually they didn't, but some of these ICOs are structured, so day one, the yeah. founders are, yeah, yeah. are, fuck you, rich. Yeah. Um, why actually build something? You well, know, what, the, what incentivizes people? Well, because in this case, I, I genuinely do not believe that they were incentivized by money here. Like, I yeah. really think especially Arthur, to maybe a slightly lesser extent, Kathleen, because she's the less technical member of the team and the couple. This was genuinely like a labor of love that like they wanted to create something that they thought would do some variety of good in the world. Like, yeah. I, like, really? oh, like, oh yeah, I mean, for, do oh, they for mean sure. That? Okay. For but sure. We hear the same, Austrian school good. We still hear, we hear similar things from... And for, from every tech company, I mean, so what level of sincerity, like compared to like, let's say your average Silicon Valley startup that is like, you know, figuring out how, building spikes so that the homeless can't sleep on the sidewalks and then saying well, we're trying to help the world. if you consider exposing people to, to free markets and stateless banks are good, then that's good, right? Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, like on the spectrum yes. of like, <laughs> the like, you know. I think they're much closer to like the like genuinely ambitiously well intended like maybe naive side of things than like the like app for your 
you know, dry on-demand dry cleaning or whatever. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, like any of these companies in Silicon Valley, like to raise the money, you have to believe in it. Like, you have to like bring yourself to the point that you think that you're doing something to change the world. Okay, but I don't. And think like, that so that's true of ICOs, though, because this is something Aaron and I talked about last week, which is that. I, I don't doubt your reporting at all. I think yeah, yeah. that if you tell me that these people are well-intentioned, then I believe that they're well-intentioned. The reason why we're, the initial response is to be skeptical is because I think that part of what Ethereum did was that it made it so that it's so easy to print coins and so easy to do ICOs that, in fact, there is no labor, emotional labor or anything to get one and that if, like we just find a whole bunch of them that, that there is no good intention. You know, right, There's yeah. actually no intention, period. It's just like... Well, hey, but, maybe they'll open this door. Right, you know? but also, like, you know, 98% of human activity in any field at any given time is utter bullshit. So, like... Most I, art sucks. The, I mean, because, like, you know, you guys like to talk about art as, like, a as an analogy on the show. And, like, so, yeah, like, most, like, gallery art being produced in Chelsea is bad. And, like, you can... But, like, what is the... Like, where does it get you to question someone's motives? Interesting. Um, that, you know, like, everyone is kind of, like, working in the system and, like, to some extent, like, like maybe some people, like, believe more in it than other people do. But also, I don't actually even necessarily think that, like, the purity of your belief reflects the value of your contribution. There are people who, like, would hole up in a cave just, like, painting their whole lives, like, outside of, like, any commercial system. And, like, are they producing, like, and maybe they're producing terrible work. And then there are other people where, like, they have been really successful in the gallery system and like their work sells for a lot of money and like they make genuinely good like yeah, good work. True. So like I I don't think that all of these things necessarily like hang together. Whereas like for a lot of the true believers here, like they do think that like that there's like justice in the world. I mean like when you listen to like Safety and Talk and he says the difference between like good music and bad music is like how much time someone put into this, you think oh, like, that's really sweet that he has this, like, kind of fantasy that contributions can be, like, quantified that way and that, like, this is clearly somebody who, like, deeply believes in, like, a certain kind, like, the justice of a certain kind of system. So if we if we remove intentions, and I agree, yeah. intentions are hard. If yeah. a scammer and a well-intentioned failure end up in the same point, it makes it difficult to say, oh, intentions are everything. Like, in some ways, it becomes results. So in thinking about what went wrong here, yeah. and I think at this point we still have to classify Tezos in the what went yeah, wrong yeah, yeah. Oh, camp, yeah. it seems like it's a little bit of the like hero pursuit on the behalf of people who have strong ideological. Like there's always a question of Satoshi made uh, Bitcoin, it's a blockchain, it's whatever. You could just put your head down and be an evangelist for Bitcoin or build things that help expand Bitcoin. Or you can be like, I believe in this so much that I think my ideas should come into place. And you put yourself in a position where you become a messiah figure. And I think that Vitalik is a messiah figure. And if this has, had succeeded and had been one of the big three, Arthur Brightman would have become a messiah. A, I wonder whether these people really want should become messiahs, like personally, whether it's like these are the right people to take on that kind of a thing. And I also wonder if we can really say they're fully like well-intentioned if their intentions are to do something that changes the world, but like it's their thing that changes well, the world. Well, okay, so you, like you, that That's gets- That's a Silicon well, Valley No, thing but that too. gets like exactly to like the core of this whole thing, which is it is the use of like centralized structures built around charismatic individuals that are supposed to develop things that ultimately become- 
totally decentralized participatory networks that are not based on like the initial institutional viability, the initial concent- the concentration of like power, ability in one person, or the cult of personality surrounding that person. Yep. So like there's like a fundamental like irony here. They're post-human in a way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, because like Savidian talks about like the blockchain extending for hundreds of years, yeah. like beyond a person's lifetime. Of course. The idea is that like humans are like fallible and we're going to like get past human fallibility, get past the problem that like humans aren't uh, like aren't reliable and aren't trustworthy. And like we're going to outsource like all of those feelings to this thing that like is, you know, mathematically verifiable. But it, you don't have to look very far in like American history to look for like cases where extremely strong centralized fiat was like put into and fiat meaning decision making rather than fiat currency don't make me get the crowbar (laughs) (laughs) is is put into the service of like broad equality right i mean like so you like you talk about messiah like you have like literally like william dennings bryan giving his cross of gold speech make like marking him as like one of the great american populist heroes and like that was a campaign for monetary experimentation and like so one of the things that I think gets like lost in so much of the conversation around like Bitcoin and all kinds like stuff now is that like this is just like the most recent version of like a long history of monetary experimentation, which often historically is more associated with the left than with the right, although like that's been different for for Bitcoin. Um, in a sense, they they did get hoisted on their own petard here where like they ran into like the one of the fundamental problems with like getting something decentralized going via a centralized apparatus is that like that centralization doesn't just like wither away well i i think that that's absolutely true and also it seems like they ran up against some of the limitations of people like yeah oh yeah like we're um, we keep imagining these frictionless market systems in which people can't intervene or whatever and they only assume this like slight bit of human trust but the minute you give uh, the guy, the, the only keys to the bank or whatever, that's like a, a human thing in there. And I feel like, like crypto imagines itself to be post-human, but the realities of doing anything in the world right now are that you have to interface with people. And I don't know, I guess I'm curious about projects that would sort of assume that rather than assume like, Oh, people won't play into what I mean, I think like one of the most kind of exquisite ironies about this is that like there there were people who looked at it as like, oh, look, this was all about like just trusting the machines and like, ha ha ha. They like the one guy they had to trust, like fuck them. Whereas the the thing about them is that like they're not absolutists in that sense. Like they weren't just building the thing that like worked because of math. Like they were acknowledging that like human politics are going to be involved in the administration of all these things. And you had to incorporate that and you had to like make allowances for human coordination. And that was going to be their differentiating factor is like the recognition of like the importance of the humans at the end. Right. And they were the ones who then like got screwed because they trusted the wrong guy. If this was a novel, I'd be like, eh, it's hitting the nail on the head a little bit hard here. Yeah. Like, did they have to get screwed over by the like Swiss South African bet guy? <laughs> yes, they did. They did. Well, thank you so much for thank doing you this, Gideon. Um, where can people find the story? Oh, it's uh, on the cover of Wired this month, and it's on their homepage. And where can people find you? Oh, I'm at GideonLK.com. Are you going to continue to write about um, uh, blockchain and crypto-related stuff, or do you need like a five-year vacation at this point? This, this story took a lot out of you. Yeah, you're, exactly. you're, 
you're grayer than the last time I saw you before you were working on this. Yeah. Yeah. And you were personally threatened during this. I was. Yeah. yeah. At the final scene of the story, I was threatened. Okay. Well, if you disappear mysteriously, I'm going to, I'm going to investigate. Okay. Will you come back on next time you got something on this yeah, topic? Yeah. Anytime. I'll come back on whenever you want. Awesome. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Thursday, June 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $5,883. And that was Coin Talk. Thanks very much to Gideon Lewis Krauss. Thanks to my co host, Jay Kang. Thanks to our editor, James Nicholson. Thanks to our friends over at Medium. You can find us at medium.com/slash coin talk. You can send us an email. Hi at cointalk.show. We'll do a mailbag soon or just maybe uh, pick up a few questions on each episode. Oh, and thanks to our friend uh, Ledger Status of the LedgerCast. Subscribe to that. Great show. Uh, We'll have him on soon, too. That should be fun. We will see you soon.